If you haven't opened your Bibles to Exodus 19, please do so. We're going to be in verses 1 through 8. Uh, and this morning, we're returning to our series in the book of Exodus. We started this series last fall, and we've been kind of taking it a section at a time. We'll take a little break, go somewhere else, and then come back to it. And so we're returning to the book and the story of Exodus, and we'll be in this book through the end of November. Now, the story of Exodus is this, it's the great redemption story of the Old Testament, uh, in, in the pages of this book, we read how after 430 years of slavery, uh, God redeems Israel. He, he sends Moses as the leader to lead them out. God puts his power on display, and he defeats the Egyptians, he defeats their army, and he radically rescues Israel. And then after saving them, he leads them not directly to the promised land, but into the wilderness. And why does he lead them into the wilderness? What was the purpose of this? Because the wilderness it's a hard place. It's a harsh place. It's not the kind of place of comfort and ease. If you had just spent 400 and some years in slavery, that's probably not the first place you would choose to be led after being redeemed. So why does God lead them into the wilderness? Is it to, is it to crush them? Uh, is it to bury them in doubt and guilt? No. God leads them there not to destroy them, but to strengthen them. They're in their wilderness not to be defeated, but to gain endurance. God isn't there to crush them, but to refine them. He's leading them through the wilderness in order to give them a mature, a lasting, and enduring faith. He wants them to be obedient, to trust him, come what may. And when we come to Exodus 19, this is sort of the next pivotal moment in the story. In Exodus 19, this is the next major section of the book where God is going to give his people the law, which includes the Ten Commandments. And we're going to spend the majority of the fall looking at the Ten Commandments, but to understand them properly, you really have to understand the context. You have to understand their purpose in the larger picture of the book of Exodus. And so we're going to, these next two weeks, sort of set the stage and the context important themes that will help us understand the Ten Commandments. So let me, let me start by asking this question. Why does God save people? If someone were to ask you that, why does God save people? Why does God rescue and redeem? How would you answer that question? So the summer between my freshman and sophomore year of college, I was part of this program at our church, which was essentially like VBS for junior high and high school kids. And so this program was started by a very conservative Christian college in Florida. And what they would do is they would send students all throughout the country during the summer, and they would run these programs for junior high and high school kids. And I was one of the volunteers at my church that jumped in and helped. And the way this would go is we would do the program either in the morning or the afternoon. And then at night, we do this fun little thing called street evangelism. If you've ever been a part of a street evangelism, done street evangelism, or if you've ever seen people do street evangelism, you can know it can be a bit of a wild time. So one night, we are walking through this main strip, and there are a ton of people hanging out, and we, we kind of roll up to these uh, guys that are st uh, sitting outside a Dairy Queen, and three guys that, that are, are roughly uh, my age, same age as the, the college guys that are leading it, and we come up and start a conversation, and the, the dudes from Florida immediately sort of launch into one of those, if you died tonight, do you know you would go, gospel presentations. 
And as they're talking, the three guys, like their eyes just get super big, like, whoa, no one's ever told us this before, or whoa, this is really overwhelming to, to consider. No, I don't know if I were, where I would go if I were to die, and, and no, I don't want to go to hell, because who really wants to go to hell? And so there was this sense that they were just kind of overwhelmed with the information. And then they got to the parts where, hey, do you want to trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior? And, and the three guys were like, yes. Now, it wasn't an enthusiastic yes. It was more of like, hey, if these guys, what these guys are saying is true, we better cover our own bases, yes. But it was a yes nonetheless. And so we, we led them in a prayer. And after the prayer was done, those two guys from Florida were like, nice to meet you, and they turn and walk away. And I'm sitting there, and part of me is like, like, look, I wouldn't even be in this conversation if it weren't for those two guys. Like, I am not the street evangelist type. I'm not the type to go up and cold call someone with the gospel. So, so I, I could give these guys major props. But when they walked away, something in me was just like, that's not right. Like, like something in me was just like, that, that, we can't just leave them here. We can't leave them at that moment. So I, I, I found a pen, I grabbed a piece of paper, I just wrote down the name of my church, and I was like, hey, it, you, you should come to church. Like, like, come to church, I'll meet you there, like, let's talk more. And so I tried to encourage them to come. Uh, sadly, they never showed up. But, but here, here's the wrestle. Here's the issue. I, I, I want to knock those guys, like sharing the gospel. Their, their heart was in the right place. They wanted to see people come to be redeemed and rescued and know Christ. They wanted to see, to see people escape from judgments. But is the point of salvation just escape from judgment? Like, understand, being rescued from our sin, being redeemed from our sin, escaping judgment through Christ, praise God that God is the God of salvation. Praise God that he does that. But to say that salvation is just about rescue from judgment is like saying the sun is a light. It's true as far as it goes. But it's such an understatement that it actually starts to distort the truth. Listen, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is not just about escaping judgment. It's not just fire insurance. It's far more. It means far more. Salvation in Christ isn't just rescue from. It is rescue to and rescue for. God has a purpose in salvation. God has a purpose when he rescues and redeems. And that is what we are going to look at in this next section of Exodus. God didn't rescue and redeem Israel from slavery and go, hey, look, you're welcome. Enjoy your freedom. Have a nice life. Call if you need anything. No, as we're going to see, God rescued and redeemed Israel to bring them near himself. Not so they could live at a distance, but to bring them near. Not so that they could live independent, but to live dependent upon him. Not to live for self, but to live for him and his glory, to be on mission with him. Not to be their own people, but to be his people. So the title of my message this morning is We Are Not Our Own. And here's the main point of Exodus 19 that we're going to consider. We have been rescued by God to be the obedient people of God. We have been rescued by God to be the obedient people of God. And so as we read in verses 1 through 3, the Lord leads Israel to a very specific location along their wilderness journey. In the third month, 
From the very day the Israelites left the land of Egypt, they came to the Sinai wilderness. They traveled from Rephidim, came to the Sinai wilderness, and camped in the wilderness. Israel camped there in front of the mountain. Now, Israel has been on the road for three months. They have faced hunger. They have faced thirst. They have faced a hostile army, and God has delivered them all. From all of those things, God has been faithful to deliver them. And now they come to the, mount, the foot of Mount Sinai, and they make camp. They set up camp. And this stop isn't random. This is not like when you're on a road trip with your family and someone goes, I have to go to the bathroom, and so you find the first stop that you can come, you find. It's not like that kind of stop. No, this stop was purposeful, intentional. It was predetermined. If you go back to Exodus 3, this is what the Lord tells Moses. He answered, I will certainly be with you, and this will be a sign to you that I am the one who sent you. When you bring the people out of Egypt, you will all worship God at this mountain. Essentially, God is saying, Moses, let's go get my people and let's bring them back here where they're going to meet with me. God sends Moses out bring, to, to go get the people of Israel. God brings them out of Egypt. And where does he lead them? Back to the very mountain where Moses first met God or God first showed himself to Moses. And so this point here is that God brings Israel out of Egypt, not just to sort of scatter them, but to bring them into his very presence. Now, here's the kicker, because that that sounds great, right? On paper, it's like, cool, God saved Israel and brought him into his presence. But here's the kicker. Where Sinai is located, where this mountain is located, at least as best as scholars know, is farther away from the promised land than Egypt is. Like, think about that. God leads Israel out of Egypt, and he doesn't lead them to the promised land. He leads them farther away to gather in his presence. Does this not, in some ways, just describe the tension of faith? Like, there's this expectation of blessing, like, God rescued and redeemed. All these good things are going to happen for me. Life will get better. Life will get easier but then it doesn't. It doesn't happen. In fact, in some ways, when you follow Christ, when you put your faith in God, life can get more difficult. Life can become more complex. There is pain, there is trial, there is difficulty, there is persecution. When you deny yourself, when you turn your back on the world and comfort and ease, it's not always an easy journey. But, But here's the question we have to wrestle with. If you are led to something more difficult, if the better you hope for doesn't come, are you okay with that if it means you are in the presence of God? Are you okay with the trial? Are you okay with the pain, the harshness of the wilderness, if it means you are in the very presence of God? The question is, is our faith about us, or are we not our own? Are we the people of God who worship him, treasure him, love him above all else? Or is our faith just something we tag on to the end of our nice, comfortable Midwestern lives? Sure, I'll take God, I'll take faith as long as he solves all my problems, makes, gives me the life that I want to have, gives me all my hopes and dreams. As long as God gives me what I want, serves me, then yeah, I'll take it. God leads Israel 
almost to like the farthest point of the wilderness to meet with him. And in that, here's what he does. He says, hey, all that stuff about the promised land, all that stuff about material blessing, yeah, that's coming, but that's not the point. Here's the point, you and me. In relationship, you are my people before my presence. Like this is what matters. Yes, I'm going to bless you. Yes, good is coming. But that's secondary to this. Is that the kind of faith you have? Is that the kind of faith that defines your life to where God's presence, relationship with God, nearness to God, that is your greatest treasure. That is the thing that matters most. Being a child of God, being the people of God. So the Lord leads Israel to Sinai and then he calls Moses up the mountain to give Moses his word in verses three through six. Moses went up to the mount to, to God. Now, this is the first of seven ascents that Moses makes in the book of Exodus. Seven times Moses goes up the mountain to meet with God for various reasons. Now that number seven is pregnant with meaning. And there's kind of two primary layers there. The first is, so this is meant to hearken back to Genesis 1 and the seven days of creation. And so there's a parallel going on. It's seven days of creation, Moses going up the mountain seven times to kind of mirror this new creation of a new people. And then there's also seven is the number of completion and perfection. Moses goes up the mountain seven times to receive the word of God, and this seven times points to the perfect law of the Lord. So that seven number is not just random, it's purposeful. So Moses ascends to the mountain, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, this is what you must say to the house of Jacob and explain to the Israelites. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you'll carefully listen to me and keep my covenant, you will be my own possession out of all the peoples. All of the whole earth is mine, and you will be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. These are the words that you are to say to the Israelites. So God tells Moses, here is what it will mean to be my people. That's what's going down here. I'm going to tell you what it will mean to be my people. And the key word in Verses three through six, that really gives us the insight into understanding what God is up to here is the word covenant. Covenant is a central theme and a central idea in scripture. It is vital to understand this concept of covenant because when we understand covenant, it helps us understand the entire narrative of scripture. It helps us understand how the Old Testament and New Testament are connected and it helps us to understand our salvation in Christ. So, so if this were kind of like a movie, and here we are in the present, it'd be that moment where sort of the present sort of stops, it freeze frames, and then it shifts to like a higher picture and kind of the past that sort of gives the context of how did we get here? And so let's just take a moment to step back and consider this concept of covenant. So at its foundation, covenant, is, it's a promise. It's a commitment. It's a binding commitment. And it's not just a binding commitment. It, this commitment creates relationship. It's far stronger than a simple agreement. And it's far more personal than just simply a contract. And in Scripture, when two parties make a covenant, 
They pledge all that they are, their hearts, their lives, their resources, everything they are to one another. Everything that I have is committed to the other person. And so to break covenant is tantamount to death because it is violating the all of that other person. It is the deepest level of betrayal. To break covenants is no small matter. Now, what Scripture shows us, and this is what's so beautiful, is that when God relates to people, He's not distant. He's not the creator that sort of just wound the clock on creation and just let it spin and just said, peace out. Now, when God relates to people, when he relates to his creation, he does so by covenant. He is deeply and intimately involved in his creation. Like, we were created to know God, to have a deep, personal, intimate relationship with God. As those who are made in his image, we were meant to know him, to be near him, to experience him. God, who doesn't need us, understand, he does not need us. He freely chooses to bind himself to us freely. He wants to do it. He's not compelled. There's not something in him that needs us. It's, I want to do this. And so he binds himself to us. He binds himself to those who are made in his image. But here we come to a problem. We see this in the first few chapters of the Bible. That that first covenant God made with Adam and Eve, wherein there is blessing and there is life for obedience, they break it. They break God's covenant. They disobey, and it plunges humanity into sin and rebellion and dysfunction and judgment. But praise God, he doesn't leave us there. God makes another covenant, and this one is a little bit of a different sort. In Genesis 12, we read about where God calls a man named Abraham. And he says, hey, Abraham, I want you to leave your father's house, your, your homeland, and I want you to follow me, and I'm going to show you a land that I'm going to give to your descendants. And I'm going to make you a great nation, Abraham. There's going to be countless descendants that come from you. And through you, Abraham, the entire world is going to be blessed. Now, when God makes this promise to Abraham, had Abraham earned this? Had he done anything to deserve this? No. Well, we don't read this in Scripture, but with scholars, sort of when you put the pieces together of where Abraham is from, the people that Abraham is from, they worshipped the moon. Like that was their national deity. They worshipped the moon. So when God comes to Abraham, Abraham isn't worshipping Yahweh. He isn't worshipping the Lord. He's worshipping the moon. He's in disobedience. And yet God, in his grace, comes to Abraham and he says, hey, follow me. The covenant that God makes with Abraham is a covenant of grace, not one that he earned, not of works, a covenant of grace, of promise. And so when we fast forward to Exodus 2, those descendants of Abraham, they are now enslaved in Egypt and they're groaning, and they're crying out in their pain, they're in desperation, and here's what the end of Exodus 2 tells us. God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw the Israelites, and God knew. 
Like, why does God act on behalf of Israel? Why does he rescue? Why does he redeem? Is it because they deserved it? Because they earned it? Because they were such righteous and good people? No, if you look at the family history of Abraham and, and the people of Israel, they're a hot mess. Why does God rescue and redeem? Because he promised he would. Because he made a covenant, and God is faithful to keep his covenants because of his grace, his promises. He saves and he rescues and he redeems because of his grace. And this is reinforced in Exodus 19. Listen to what the Lord tells Moses, the, the progression of what, Moses, what God tells Moses. Here in verse 4, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. So the Lord starts by highlighting this. Hey, I rescued you. I rescued you. Look what I did to the Egyptians. I, my power was put on display. I overthrew the Egyptians. I saved you. I rescued you. I pulled you out. And then I carried you. I carried you out of Egypt. I'm carrying you through the wilderness. And I brought you to myself. All of this is an act of grace. All of this because God is faithful. They didn't earn it. They did not earn this. But God is the God of grace and of mercy. And he is faithful. And so the foundation, the foundation of the covenant that God has with his people, it's a foundation of grace. It's not, a great, it's not of works, it's of grace. The foundation of our covenant relationship with God comes to us. It is received by grace. And so do you get this order correct? Like, do you understand this order, see this order, and do you get it correct? Or are you trying to earn relationship with God? Like, are you trying to earn covenantal standing with God? If you perform enough, if you do more good than bad, if you go through all the religious motions, then you will be in relationship with God. If I please him enough, if I do enough, is that how you are living your life? Is that what you think Christianity is about? Is that how you think you are made right with God? If that is, let me tell you, that is on its face wrong. It goes against everything in Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament. The overwhelming theme, the clear covenantal theme of the entirety of Scripture is this is all of grace. This is all of grace. This is God acting and giving us what we do not deserve. Saving and rescuing and redeeming when we were the furthest thing from deserving that. And listen, we could never earn this. But like, think for a moment here. How possible was it for Israel to overthrow Egypt? Like when you think of like in the annals of history and like the crazy sort of political upheavals that happen, like it's not entirely out of the realm of possibility this could have happened. Israel was, there's a lot of them. But the structures kept them down. Like it was highly, highly unlikely it was going to happen. Darn near impossible. But it was infinitely more possible for them to overthrow Egypt than it is for us to earn salvation with God. Like it is infinitely more possible for that group of slaves to overthrow the most powerful army in the world than it is for us to overcome our sin and earn right standing with God. Why? Because in and of ourselves, we're rebellious. We're sinful. We want to sin. We like our sin. We choose our sin. Like, we choose our chains. Yeah, sometimes those chains, we curse them because they make in our life a mess and they hurt, but it's more about they're just making our life a mess rather than we want to turn from our sin. We choose it. We want it. We're enslaved to it. We cannot save ourselves. 
But here, friends, this is why the gospel is such great news. This is why the gospel is good news for us, because the covenants of grace that God made with Abraham, that promise that Abraham received by faith, that through him all the nations are going to be blessed. What does Galatians 3, 7 through 9 tell us? That promise is ultimately fulfilled in Christ. That promise is ultimately comes through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The rescue and redemption that Israel experienced from slavery that was purchased and sealed with the blood of the Passover lamb, as great as that was, as powerful as that was, it was a sign pointing to a greater redemption, the greater Passover lamb, Jesus Christ. Here's the good news of the gospel, friends. That covenant that God made in the Old Testament, he has fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That covenant of grace that he has held to, that he's been faithful to keep throughout the generations. He is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And the good news of the gospel is, is that when you and me, when we were still sinners, when we were still rebellious, when we still hated God and we were about our own agendas, God sent Christ into the world. God, who is full of love and mercy and grace, sends Jesus and Jesus comes. And what does he do? He dies for our sins. He takes the judgment that you and I deserve on himself so that we can be forgiven of sin's guilt. But he doesn't just die. On the third day, he rises again. He rises in victory over sin and evil and even death. And through the power of Christ, the power of sin is broken in our lives. Our greatest enemies, Jesus has defeated. And listen, just as Abraham exercised faith, just as Israel exercised faith in God's promise, those who put their trust in Christ, what do they experience? Forgiveness and freedom. And they're brought into a covenantal relationship with God. They're brought into covenants, a binding, lasting, forever commitment where God says, you are mine and I have you forever. Amen. Through Jesus, through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, through faith in Jesus Christ, that's how we are brought into covenant with God. And so friends, listen, we don't earn this. We don't need to earn it. We receive this. Because listen, how do we think we could even earn this? Like Jesus lived a perfect life. He died the ultimate sacrificial death and then he rose again victorious over sin, evil, and death. What do you got? What do I got? What could we possibly bring to the table that's greater than what Jesus has done for us? We don't earn this. We receive it. Praise God. That is how we are brought into covenant. That is how we are rescued. But it doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop there. God rescues and redeems Israel. He brings them into covenant by his grace. But then that grace, that rescue, that redemption, it leads to something. As the Lord continues in verse 5, Now if you will carefully listen to me and keep my covenants, so to be brought into covenant relationship with God means that now we are on the hook, so to speak. We are brought into a covenant relationship, and that means we are now under the obligation of the covenants. Remember, covenants, it's, it's an all-in commitment. And so we're rescued and redeemed by grace, yes. But that grace leads us to righteousness and goodness and obedience, and this, friends, this is where the law comes in. 
The, the law is not the way that the people of Israel earned covenant relationship with God, but it was the way that they lived out that covenant relationship. Or, or to put it another way, Israel enters into covenant relationship with God. They, they put their faith in God's promise and His grace. They trust Him in His saving power. But that faith is also expressed in obedience to God's law. What does James 2.20 tell us? Faith without works is dead. True faith, it expresses itself in obedience. And so Israel keeps covenant not to earn salvation, but in response to God's grace. Having been saved, having been brought into the covenant, now this is what it means to live as the the people of God. And so salvation by grace, but that grace calls us to obedience. Rescued by God to be the obedient people of God. And this is what we're going to see next week. This is important, church. This is so important for us to recognize. We're going to see this next week. Look, at the end of the day, we talk about God's goodness, we talk about his grace and his mercy and his love and his nearness, but we can never forget this. God is holy. He's holy. He's righteous. He's good. He's just. He's powerful. He's glorious. He is the creator. We don't just approach God flippantly. To be in relationship with God, to be near him, isn't something that we just can do on our own and just sort of come and just be like, okay, this is no big deal. No, it is a major, massive, serious thing to be in relationship with God. God is so holy, so gracious, or so, so glorious, so powerful. Like, look, if we were in and of ourselves, we'd be in his presence. If his full glory was on display, we'd all drop dead. Like, we cannot stand in his presence. We're too sinful. And so we don't approach relationship with God flippantly. To be near the Lord means to live as a particular type of people. And so this was the purpose of the law. It was to shape Israel in goodness and righteousness and purity. It was meant to orient their hearts in faith and worship and obedience. To be in covenant means we are not our own. We are to honor and we are to worship God alone. Our lives are to reflect his goodness and righteousness. To be in covenant relationship means we're being transformed by the glory of God. Our lives are now defined by obedience to him. And this is so important, friends. Listen, this is so important because often in in gospel-centered churches like ours, sometimes we treat obedience like a four-letter word. Do we not? Like we spend so much time, we got to push against legalism, we got to push against works-based salvation, we got to push against sort of heavy, those heavy-handed experiences some of us have had in church where, where there were spiritual leaders who kind of pressed us down with man-made rules. Like we're pushing against all of this, and what we end up doing is we push obedience out as well. We're, we're so concerned about not trying to bind people's consciences unbiblically that we never actually call people to obedience. And so we start to turn the volume down on obedience. But friends, that's never the message of Scripture. Never the message of Scripture. To be in covenant relationship with God, to, be, to experience the grace of God, is to now be moved into a place of obedience. We have to come to grips with the fact that too often we don't take obedience seriously. Oh, we love grace. We love celebrating grace. And grace is amazing. Yes, celebrate it all day long. But understand, grace is meant to move you somewhere. It's meant to do something in your life. 
There's a power that it has, and that power is to bring you into a place of obedience to God's word. And so listen, yeah, we don't live under the law as Israel did. The law as a system, it was a, it was a signpost pointing us to our need for Christ. It was a, a shadow, and the substance of that is Christ. Christ has come, and so the, the law, that old experience of the covenant, has passed away. But at the same time, what we're going to see in our study of the Ten Commandments is this. We are still under the obligation of obedience. We are still, by the grace of God, called to obedience. We are still to live as those who love God above all others and love others as ourselves. We are called to walk in purity and holiness and goodness and righteousness and truth and justice. Like, obedience matters. So friends, listen, Jesus didn't die to set us free. He didn't die to forgive our sins so that we could minimize obedience. The power of the Holy Spirit in your life is not making you less obedient. Like Jesus was the most obedient person that ever walked this earth. And was Jesus a cold, stodgy, uptight, anxious person? No. Jesus was the most joy-filled person who has ever walked this earth. So why would we think that obedience leads us to become cold and stodgy and anxious and legalistic? That's not obedience. That's not obedience. Because, friends, in obedience, there's blessing. As the Lord continues in verses 5 and 6, Now, if you will carefully listen to me and keep my covenants, you will be my own possession out of all the peoples. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. And so in in walking in faith and obedience, Israel is going to experience great blessing. First, they're they're going to be the Lord's own possession. So the Hebrew word there for own possession is the word sagula. And here's what it means, my prized possession my particular possession. So in the ancient world, kings, they they owned everything in the land. Like they legally had right to everything in the land. But they had their special possessions, their prized possessions that they kept close to them. God says, I am the king. I own everything. Everything is mine. But you are going to be my prized possession. The ones that are closest to me. The ones that I cherish and I love above everybody else. This is the blessing of covenant. This is the blessing of obedience to experience the nearness, the specialness, the closeness of God. Faith and obedience brings the blessing of the deepest intimacy with the Lord to experience his love and delights to be treasured. The Lord also says Israel is going to be his kingdom of priests. In the ancient world, priests had this distinct privilege. They got to enter into the presence of God. You see this theme re-emerging being near the Lord, being close to God. To be a priest meant you got access to God. You got access to his presence. Your identity is shaped by the worship of God in service to God. But it's not just that you got to go close to God. What also do priests do? They mediate between God and other people. And so Israel was going to mediate. They were going to be God's vocal mouthpiece. They were going to be the ones that brought the nations near to the Lord. And so the Lord was going to use them on mission. As God's priests, Israel would not only just enjoy intimate access to God's presence, 
but they would lead others, they would lead the nations. They were to lead the nations in the worship of God. And this also connects to their being a holy nation. To, to be holy is to be set apart, to be distinct, to be different. As the people of God walking in faith and obedience, Israel was going to be distinct. Like the nations were going to look at Israel and go, there's something different about them. The way that they live, there seems to be something just powerful and beautiful and loving and gracious. There's, there's health, there's flourishing, there's blessing there. What is going on? Holy and distinct, different. They would be devoted to goodness and righteousness, justice, purity, love, grace, mercy, and that would overflow and the nations would want to come and be a part of that. Israel was to be holy because God himself is holy. Their life was to reflect the holiness of God. And so, for faith and obedience, there's a blessing that comes, a nearness to God. And in that nearness to God, in that obedience, there's a goodness, a righteousness, a justice, a love, a mercy that shapes and permeates a community. It defines a community. Who would not want to be part of that community? Who would not want to be a part of a community that is full of goodness and righteousness and justice and mercy and love and forgiveness, where we care for one another and build one another up? Like, who would not want to be part of that blessing? That, friends, is the blessing of obedience. And what is true for Israel then is true for us now. Listen to the language the Apostle Peter uses to describe the church in 1 Peter 2.9. But you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Just as Israel was God's special possession in the Old Testament through Jesus Christ, now that, that blessing has gone to all people. And the church is now the special, the special possession of God, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Through Christ, we've been made a royal priesthood. We have access to the Lord. We are a holy nation set apart and distinct. We are God's special possession. He loves and he cherishes us. This is who we are. The Apostle Paul also uses language from Exodus 19 and Titus 2.14. He, meaning Christ, gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse us for himself, a people for his own possession, eager to do good works. Christ redeemed us. He cleansed us. That we would be a people for his special possession and that we would do what? Good works. That's just a nice way of saying, be obedient. As a nice way of saying walk in goodness and righteousness and truth and mercy and justice and forgiveness. So friends, this is, this is the blessing of obedience. Obedience is not this stodgy, heavy-handed, cold, anxious, uptight reality where we're walking around worried we're going to mess up because we're not trying to prove anything here. We're not trying to perform here. We're not trying to earn anything here. We have been rescued and redeemed by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have the power of the Holy Spirit working inside us, transforming us, and in that good, in that grace, we now walk in obedience because God's worth it, because the grace of God is that great, because Jesus is that glorious. And what comes when we walk with obedience? Blessing on this community. Like that we would be a community full of love, 
that we would be a community full of goodness and righteousness, that we'd be a, a, a community full of serving and caring for one another and extending mercy and grace and forgiveness. Look, all of that happens through obedience. All that happens is when we purpose to walk as Christ has called us to walk, to keep the covenant God has made with us. Oh, what would it do, church? What would it do if we set our hearts on being obedient to the covenants, to being obedient to the grace of God we've experienced in our life? How would it transform us? Yes, it would transform us personally, but it will transform this community. And who doesn't want to be part of that? What a way to bless one another. What a way to, to build a culture where people thrive in Christ. And so be obedient, not just for your own sake, but for the sake of others so that others would experience the goodness of the grace of God as well. And then as we do that, church, here's what's going to happen. We're going to be the light of the world. We're, we're going to be salt of the earth, as Jesus says in Matthew 5. Like if we lived out the covenants, the, the, the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to be the salt of the earth, the light of the world. God is going to put this on display, and others are going to come, and they're going to experience this, and they're going to go, what's this about? And they're going to experience the grace of God. And here's what's awesome. There are some of you in this room, that's your testimony. Like you entered into a community that was walking in obedience, walking in grace, and you saw the power of the gospel and you're like, yes, yes, I want that. Yes, I want to follow the Lord. Are we going to mess up? Yes. Yes, we're going to mess up. We're going to mess up this afternoon. Like we're going to blow it all the time. But here's the good news. Jesus died for all of that. He died for all of the sins you have committed, you're going to commit today, and you're going to commit tomorrow. We don't need to fear that because there is grace for that. And in that grace and in that freedom, let's walk in obedience. Let's walk in obedience. In conclusion, the Lord lays out covenant blessing to Israel. This is why I rescued and redeemed you, to be my people who walk in covenant obedience before me receive covenant blessing from me. And I love how Israel responds in verses 7 and 8. After Moses came back, he summoned the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded them. Then all the people responded together, we will do all that the Lord has spoken. So Moses brought the people's words back to the Lord. Like the Lord hasn't even told them anything about the law. Hasn't given him the Ten Commandments, hasn't laid out the the ceremonial laws and the ritual laws and the worship. He hasn't given them the instruction for the tabernacle. He hasn't told them a a stinking detail. But they're like, yep, we're in. We're in. Whatever you say, we are in. You're that good, you're that glorious, yes. Now, the rest of Exodus shows us, and the history of Israel shows us, they broke it a lot. They messed up. They don't follow through. But here right now, they exercise faith. They show the faith, the proper response in light of God's grace and goodness. Everything you say, Lord, we're going to do it. Yes, yes, yes. And so church, in light of the grace of God that we've experienced in Jesus Christ, the fact that we have been rescued and redeemed from all of our sin, from evil, from death itself, in light of the blessing that comes with obedience, let this be our response. All that the Lord says we're going to do. We are not our own. And so, Lord, what you say, we will do. We have been rescued by God to be the obedient people of God. Amen.